0: You are at the right place at the right time. Welcome to the Discover the Word podcast with Kevin Purney. This is a ministry of discovertheword.net. Kevin here and welcome back to Discover the Word podcast. Today we're going to listen to a message from Joshua Redberg from Jonah chapter 4 and it is titled, The Gospel and Those People. I think you're really going to enjoy this one and believe the message will pretty much speak for itself. So without any further delay, here is Joshua Redberg. Will you take your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 4, Jonah 4, I love stories, there's nothing like getting lost in a good story, my wife and I have attempted to ingrain that in our three sons by this summer giving them a list of books to read, many of them stories, some of them were short, some part of an extended series, some humorous, others adventurous. There's something about a good story, whether you read it, watch it, or hear it. The best stories all share a similar plot structure. So it begins by by setting a scene. And from there, the action begins to build. There'll be these moments of tension and uncertainty before you reach the climax. After the climax, the the loose ends are tied up and the story resolves. Usually, hopefully, with a happily ever after moment. Jonah chapters 1 through 3 make a great story. Right? The setting is a, is a prophet who's given a message by God to take to another country. The action builds as the prophet disobeys God. He runs the other direction. He's chased by a storm, thrown into the sea, and swallowed by a great fish. The climax happens in the belly of the whale as the prophet repents. And then chapter 3 resolves the story. As the prophet goes to the country, he gives the message, the people hear it, repent, and God spares them to live happily ever after. That's where the story should end. But it doesn't end there. Like chap- Jonah chapter 4 should not exist, it doesn't fit the structure of good stories. It happens after happily ever after. Why is it included? I think the ultimate purpose of the book of Jonah is revealed in chapter 4. There are a lot of great lessons in chapters 1 through 3, but the biggest lesson comes in the unexpected final chapter. The final chapter begins and ends in surprising ways. It begins with an angry Jonah, and it ends without an ending. Look at verse 1. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, Jonah has just been part of one of the greatest revivals in human history. An entire city has repented of their sin and turned to God for mercy. Like, he should be thrilled. If I got up on a Sunday morning and preached the gospel and my entire city repented, I would be thrilled. I would call people on the way home and say, You will not believe what happened today. Jonah should be excited. But he's not. He's enraged. Five times in chapter 4, Jonah's anger is mentioned. In fact, he's so angry he wants to die. Twice he says in chapter 4, I would rather die than live. And this isn't just an idle statement. He means it. Because in chapter 1, he had the opportunity to tell these sailors, Turn the boat around. Like, I'm going this way, so God sent a storm. If we go that way, I bet God will stop the storm. But he doesn't say that. He says, throw me overboard. Jonah would rather drown in the sea or bake in the desert than keep on living. Why is Jonah so angry? That's a great question for us to ask whenever we find ourselves angry. Especially since we live in a a time of perpetual outrage. We get more and more angry without taking time to consider why we're angry. And whether the anger is appropriate. Anger is like a metal detector. The the, the closer the metal detector gets to the treasure, the louder it beeps. The closer something gets to what we treasure, the angrier and angrier we get. Our anger grows more and more fierce and often more and more loud when something we treasure is threatened. So what is Jonah so angry about? Look at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah is angry because God forgave Nineveh instead of destroying it. Jonah wanted to see Nineveh suffer. In fact, even after this exchange with God, Jonah sets up outside the city like it's the 4th of July, hoping to see a show. But why? Why is it he's so angry? See, God has been merciful and gracious to him throughout the book, and he's been fine with it. In 2 Kings 14, we see that when God told him to deliver a positive message to to the king of Israel, he obeyed. So Jonah is fine with God being gracious and kind at times. Why does this act of grace so, anger Jonah. His problem was not with God being gracious, but with God being gracious to those people. Jonah did not run the opposite way because he was afraid of the Assyrians. He ran the opposite way because he was afraid that God would be gracious to the Assyrians and he did not want them to experience God's grace. To Jonah, the Assyrians were those people who should be judged and condemned, not forgiven. So, why did Jonah see the Assyrians as those people unworthy of God's grace? Well, there's a clue in the text. Look at what Jonah says in verse 2. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? My country. Jonah has this strong nationalistic view. In fact, the very first words that Jonah speaks in the entire book, chapter 1, verse 9, are this. I am a Hebrew. So when Jonah was asked to tell his country about God's grace, he was quick to obey. But when Jonah was asked to tell a different country about God's grace, he ran the other way. He would tell his people, but not those people. Any way that people are different from you can be a reason for you to treat them as those people. It could be something national, something physical, spiritual, intellectual. Anytime you see a difference with someone else and that difference causes you to view yourself as superior, you have just turned them into those people. So each of us needs to ask, who are those people in my life? We cannot assume, well, I would never do what Jonah did. His treating a group of people as less valuable or less worthy has happened throughout history and Christians have not been immune to it. In the early church, some of the Jewish Christians looked at Gentile Christians as those people. Even the apostle Peter and Barnabas refused to eat with the Gentile Christians until Paul came and confronted them for their hypocrisy. Martin Luther great reformer, who proclaimed the gospel boldly in a, in a dark time, treated the Jews as those people. One of his writings, he said, we should burn their synagogues and destroy their writings. George Whitfield, most notable preacher of the Great Awakening, thousands upon thousands came to faith because of his preaching. He's burdened to help orphans, so he establishes an orphanage, and then he has slaves work the plantation to keep it alive. At that time, slavery was illegal in Georgia. He became one of the leading proponents to legalize slavery. Just a month or so ago, I was talking with a 71-year-old African-American brother in my town. And he told me that when he drove to our church office, which was next to an old pharmacy, that he remembers having to go to the back door of that pharmacy as a kid. Because he couldn't go inside. And the people who owned that pharmacy... Longstanding members of a Baptist church. When I was in Moldova earlier this year, I discussed Jonah 4 with a group of pastors. And they said, oh, we know who that is for Moldovans. It's Russians. They're those people. Because of our pride and self-love, any way in which someone is different than we are can be enough to turn them into those people. So I think about myself, what am I? I'm a Christian. So, Muslims, atheists, Mormons, they can become those people. I'm a man. So, women can be those people, right? Like, women. I'm an American, so anyone from another country can be those people. I speak English, so if I hear other languages, oh, those people. I'm white, so anyone with a different skin color. Can be those people. I'm middle class, so anyone richer than me can be those people. In Fuquay, sometimes we talk about those people in North Raleigh. (laughs) They think they're better than us. We joke, but we probably reveal something about our hearts in that joke. Also, because I'm middle class, I have people poorer than me. Can be those people. I'm educated. So those lacking education. I homeschool. So anyone who makes a different choice. In schooling, I'm politically conservative, so, so anyone from another party can be those people. Any way in which someone is different than me can become a way for me to treat them as less deserving of God's grace. I can even do this with people who sin differently than I do. There was a joke I heard when I was a young kid, and it was a terrible joke. It wasn't funny, and it was just terrible. But it went something like this. Do you want to know how to stop the AIDS epidemic? Put all the gay people on a rocket and send them, send them to the moon to colonize it. Apparently, those people deserve judgment for their sin, but we don't. Now, Jonah's defense for his attitude could have been, don't, don't you understand how evil the Assyrians are? Like they're evil. Chapter one has, has literally reached up to the heavens and God has sent me here. Don't you understand what they have done to others, how they have victimized people? So maybe Jonah would argue that his problem wasn't their nationality, but their depravity. If that were the case, who could really blame him for wanting judgment, right? Seeing grace as only for certain sins or certain sinners shows how greatly we misunderstand both sin and grace. See, we see sin from the wrong perspective. We we see sin. If sin is a forest, we see it from the ground. So we walk through the forest and we see certain sins, and we're like, look at those redwoods. Look at those mighty oats. And then we see our sins as these cute little shrubs. It's an azalea bush. It's flowering. And we say, look look at how awful that is, but look how oh that's not that bad. Well, God sees our sin from above. Have you ever flown over a forest? You can't tell a difference in the size of trees. All you see is a dark blot. When we treat people with certain sin struggles as those people, we ignore what God says about our sin and our need for grace. Jonah's anger came from God's grace on those people who Jonah felt were unworthy of God's grace. Is Jonah's anger okay? Is it right for Jonah to be angry? God asked him that question twice, verse 4 and verse 9. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Now, to help Jonah answer that question, God gives him an object lesson. He first sends a shade tree to make Jonah more comfortable, verse 6. He then sends a worm to eat the shade tree, verse 7. And then he sends a scorching east wind to make Jonah miserable, verse 8. And while Jonah is miserable, God asks him that question a second time. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And this time his anger is more about the plant dying than about God's grace on Nineveh. And so when Jonah responds, yes, it's right for me to be angry, I should just die. God asks Jonah a question. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? In which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Jonah's anger is wrong. Not just his anger over the plant, but also his anger over Nineveh. And God here connects the two of them together. In both cases, Jonah was angry for the same reason. Jonah's anger came from loving himself more than loving his neighbor. Jonah's anger at Nineveh was born out of pride. I deserve forgiveness. Those people don't. And his anger at the plant was also born out of pride. I deserve protection. But those people don't. See, Jonah's selfishness here is revealed both by what makes him angry and what makes him happy. There's a connection between those two things in your life. Verse 1 says, Jonah was exceedingly angry. And verse 6 says, Jonah was exceedingly glad. What makes you happy and what makes you sad, what makes you angry and what makes you joyful, reveals what you really love. Jonah was angry when those people different than him were not condemned. And he was happy when he was comfortable. And both revealed Jonah's greatest love was Jonah. The root of bigotry is always a love of self. We love ourselves so much that we exalt ourselves over those who are different than us. Jonah loves himself more than 120,000 people who are spiritually ignorant. This kind of self love, this kind of pride, it shrinks our world. It makes us miserable. The only time in the entire book that Jonah is happy is when a plant grows up to give him shade. The more he focuses on himself, the more shallow and narrow he becomes. What makes you angry? What makes you happy? That reveals what you treasure. This final chapter has some important lessons to teach us about pride and selfishness. And about how pride and selfishness produce bigotry and prejudice. See, bigotry happens whenever I look down upon someone who is different than I am. Bigotry is when I quickly and easily rush to condemn those who hold different beliefs or have different struggles. I want to point out just three principles about bigotry from this text. First, good theology does not keep you from bigotry. Good theology does not keep you from bigotry. Jonah knew his theology. He quotes from the Old Testament in verse 2. Listen, his theology did not keep him from bigotry. He actually used his theology as fuel for his bigotry. He, he ran from Nineveh. Why? Because he knew God's character. He knew God would forgive. Jonah's issue is not a lack of theology, but a failure to apply theology to his life. the passage Jonah quotes, is repeated numerous times in the Old Testament, but the original is Exodus 34, verse 6. And it comes immediately after the nation of Israel has just built the the golden calf. They've worshipped it, and God says to Moses, I should just wipe these people out. For their sin, they deserve to die, and and Moses pleads before God to, to spare them. And God says he will spare them, and he says this is why, because he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah knows God's character. He understands God's works, but he doesn't apply it to his own life. He is glad for God's grace on his people, but not on those people. You see, some Christians write theology. For instance, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Like, that's right theology. That's all you'll ever hear here. Because that's what the Bible teaches. There is one way to heaven, Jesus Christ. But some Christians write theology has been wielded as a weapon against those from other religions. The Bible teaches that there is one way to salvation. But that doesn't mean we view Muslims as those people. We, We need to have compassion on those who are ignorant of God's saving work. Muslims don't need our prejudice. They need our Savior. Here we are, sitting in a chapel at Southeastern. So I assume we know our theology. I, I'm, I believe walking on a campus that looks like this makes you smarter. Like, we can quote verses from the Old Testament just like Jonah did. But right theology will only keep us from bigotry if it helps us love Jesus more. Because Jesus said, The person who knows their sin is great and has been forgiven of it, they will love much. But the one who says, I have little sin and have little need for forgiveness will love little. The number one way you can fight the temptation in your life to see certain people as those people is by applying the gospel to yourself. When you see warnings of sin in the Bible, don't think about other people those of you who are pastors, this is is what we do. This is hard. Every verse I read, I think about a face in my congregation. But I should first, especially in warnings about sin, think about my own heart. The seeds of every sin are in my heart. See, nothing would be worse than a church or a seminary filled with people who can recite a catechism without obeying it, who can quote verses without keeping them. Love good theology, but don't think good theology is sufficient to conquer the pride in your heart that leads to bigotry. Second, God is not okay with bigotry in his people. God is not okay with bigotry in his people. What does God do to expose the bigotry in Jonah's heart? He appoints a plant to grow, verse 6. He appoints a worm to eat the plant, verse 7. He appoints a, a scorching east wind to make Jonah miserable, verse 8. God would not leave Jonah captive to his pride and prejudice. Now, there is a fascinating word choice in verse 6. It says that God appointed a plant to grow to save Jonah from his, and the ESV translates it, discomfort. To save Jonah from his discomfort. But that word translated discomfort is actually the same word used in chapter 1, verse 2, to talk about Nineveh's evil. You see, God sent Jonah to save Nineveh from their evil, and God sent a plant to save Jonah from his evil. Have you ever asked, why did God send Jonah to Nineveh in the first place? Like, surely there was a better candidate. I mean, I can just, I can just picture, like, the, the committee meeting. And Jonah comes in. And you're like, we're, we're thinking about sending you to Nineveh. What do you think? And he says, I won't go. What do you mean by that, you won't go? I mean, literally, I will run the opposite direction. But, like, don't your heart, right, is motivated by compassion for them. And he says, no, I hate them. The only thing I'd like to see is them burn. How many going be you like, you're the man. You're the man for this job. <laughs> like, we, we've been looking for you. This seems like the worst possible choice. like all of God's prophets, and he can't find a single one more suited for this task than Jonah? What are the other guys like? You realize God sent Jonah to Nineveh because of his bigotry? God was going to take care of two evils at one time. The evil in the city of Nineveh and the evil in Jonah's heart. See, God not only sends his people to save others, but he saves his people from the sins rooted deep in their own hearts. God has the ability to multitask. I can't. I, I multitask. I'm ignoring one thing I should be doing while doing something I probably shouldn't be. Like, But God can do this. He can do two things at once and he may be multitasking in your life right now. So that neighbor moved in and you were wondering why. And it's not only so they'll be saved by your witness, but so your heart will be changed by your service to them. You lost your job and had to go to a food pantry. You wonder why. So you can be a testimony to those there and so that you'll start to care for the poor and view them differently. You got mistreated at work so that you'll start to see injustice and fight against it. God is always doing this. The book of Jonah teaches us that God is constantly pursuing sinners, whether it's a wicked city or some pagan sailors or a self-righteous prophet. He is always pursuing his people to save them from the evil inside. In this final chapter, Jonah stands as a representative of God's people. He's a representative of the entire nation of Israel. A nation called to be a light to the Gentiles. And God is asking the nation if they will do what he has called them to do. Will you look down upon the Gentiles or will you be a light to the Gentiles? The nation of Israel responds just like Jonah. But the true Israel, the ultimate prophet, does not look down upon the Gentiles. He is a great light to all that walk in darkness. He does not run from sinners. He runs to sinners to save them. You see, this book of Jonah is a rebuke to anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ, but is unwilling to engage a certain person or certain group of people with the gospel of grace. But it's also a reminder that God will not sit by idly and leave you in your prejudice, that God will send a storm, a fish, a scorching east wind. He will send something to save you from your sin. Thirdly, finally, bigotry undermines the mission of God. Bigotry undermines the mission of God. See, Jonah's bigotry caused him to work against what God was doing. So God said, I'm going I'm to save these, these Ninevites. And Jonah runs the other way. God says, I'm going to show them mercy. And Jonah wants judgment. When you look down upon another group of people, When you see yourself as superior to someone else, you are working against what God is doing. See, bigotry and prejudice in any form, whether national, racial, social, political, is anti-gospel. It is anti-gospel because the gospel is the message of grace to the undeserving. But bigotry says, well, I'm deserving of grace, you're not. No one deserves it. That's the whole point. That's the beauty of grace. When you look down upon others, you undermine the very message you say you believe. Bigotry is also anti Christ because Jesus Christ condescended, He became lowly in order to save those who are undeserving. You see, like Jesus, Jonah, a prophet from Galilee, was cast into the deep. And by being cast into the deep, he was able to save others from their sin. After three days and three nights, he was raised up by the power of God. There's so much to see about the story of Jesus and the life of Jonah. But Jesus is so much greater than Jonah. Jesus looks with mercy on those deserving of judgment. You and I are never more unlike Jesus than when we treat someone else as undeserving of grace. See, we don't just ignore God's plan when we act in bigotry. We undermine it. So God is gathering a group of people for himself more beautiful than a rainbow, and we want to make it monochromatic. God is gathering for himself a a people which sound more beautiful than a choir, and we want to make it monotone. God is saving a beautifully diverse group of people. Do you realize that when Nineveh repented and heaven rejoiced, those in heaven looked like the people in Nineveh? See, when we harbor bigotry in our hearts, we undermine God's plan for the world. Jonah's bigotry has turned him into a spectator content to sit by and watch people die. Are you a spectator? Are you content to sit by from a distance and watch people die in their sin? The story of Jonah has some interesting parallels It's one of the most famous stories Jesus told. The story of two brothers. The younger brother, the prodigal son, is a lot like Jonah in chapters 1 and 2. He rebels. He runs away. He reaches this terribly low point, and it's in that low point where he sees his folly and repents. He returns, and when he returns, he's welcomed by the father, and the father throws a celebration. The older brother is a lot like Jonah in chapter 4. He gets angry when the father shows mercy on the younger son. In his pride and arrogance, he looks down upon his brother, who, in his opinion, does not deserve grace. You know, that story ends a lot like the story of Jonah, it ends without an ending. Will the older brother repent of his arrogance? Will he turn from his prejudice? Will he celebrate his father's grace? Will Jonah repent of his arrogance? Will he turn from his prejudice? Will he celebrate his father's grace? I think the stories end that way because it doesn't matter what Jonah decided. Or the older brother decided. What matters is that we each answer the question ourselves. Will I repent of my arrogance? Will I turn from my prejudice? Will I celebrate the Father's grace? The ending is up to you. Father. The difficulty with sins of pride, self-love and prejudice, with bigotry, is that it hides in the very deepest and darkest corners of our heart. It is socially unacceptable, and so it does not come out very often or very publicly. And so we need your Holy Spirit to expose in us what is so difficult for us to see. We need your Holy Spirit to show us where we love ourselves more than our neighbor, where we view ourselves as more superior, as more deserving of your grace. Show us, Lord, if there are any way that we treat other people as those people undeserving of your grace. And when you expose that, help us to repent, turn from it, Receive your grace and celebrate your grace with all people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's message and want to thank you for joining us on this Discover the Word journey today. If you have a moment, would you join with others in going to iTunes and leaving a good review for us? Thanks. We also invite you to visit our website, discovertheword.net. Until next time, Have a wonderful day and may God richly bless you.